Uh, so we worked through it. We're working through Exodus uh, as a church in uh, the evenings. Um, one of our elders is taking up the first of the nine plagues tonight. So uh, fair play to him working through all of those chapters this evening. Uh, I did this a few weeks ago, did chapters one and two, but with the time that we've done, I thought it'd be nice just to meditate upon chapter one together this evening. So please do keep open the passage in front of you. Make sure what I'm saying lines up with what God's word is saying. Uh, a few, well, a few years ago, when I first became a Christian, I remember the summer I became a Christian probably in the in the February or so. And in that summer, I was sitting around with some of my new Christian friends one evening and we were talking about spiritual gifts. There was so much that I was learning about the Christian faith. And uh, I was asking what spiritual gifts do people think they had? And one of them said to me that I think I've got the spiritual gift of hindsight, Kieran. I always know afterwards what I should have done or what God was actually doing at the time. I laugh, but the more I think about that, the more true that becomes, doesn't it? There's so often in our lives we can think that God is doing one thing, but later on we see how he was using the things that were going on in our lives to shape us and to mould us, to uh, bring us closer and draw us into him. Part of spiritual hindsight is eyeing the, the straight, the steadfast and consistent line of God's faithfulness. And that's what we're going to see as we work our way through the passage here. We should just say, setting the scene, Exodus, second book of the Bible, probably, maybe, you can debate this, the most influential book in the Old Testament. It's what happens in this book is the paradigm for the way God deals with his people. The book of the Exodus, the book of Exodus is about the great redemption of God. It recounts how God ransomed a people for righteousness, how he saved them to sing, set them apart for service and delivered them so that they might dwell in his presence. And the big movement of the book of Exodus is the people going from being slaves to a corrupt and cruel king to serving the gracious and righteous God. And what we see here in this opening chapter is how these people, we see about their slavery here, yet how God does not abandon them in that, how God does not forget the promises that he made to them. Uh, our passage today covers almost 400 years of history, which is compressed down into just the 21 verses that we read earlier on. Um, it's theological history. It's selective history, trying to alert us to key moments which highlight the evil of Egypt, but also the fingerprints of God. Moses here recaps the descent of the circumstance of Hebrews. He charts their fall from prosperity to poverty, from liberty to slavery, and from the good to the bad and to the ugly. And there are the three points that I want, to think us, want us to think through this evening. The good, the bad, and the ugly. So first, have a look with me at verses 1 to seven. The opening word of this book is 
and so here this is an unmistakable link back to the book of genesis the prior book the first book in the scriptures and what this is doing is it's linking us up with everything that's gone on beforehand particularly to the closing story at the end of genesis the final story of that book concerns itself with joseph the son of jacob Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and exported to the land of Egypt, where after a time he eventually becomes kind of the equivalent of the prime minister of that nation. And in an act of grace, he forgives his brothers and cares and provides for them when they were seeking escape from famine in their own land. After a time, Joseph and all his brothers, along with all those who had escaped starvation in their homeland to the bounty of Egypt, they die. That's what you see there uh, in verse verse 6. But from that small number of 70, the nation grew. And the Hebrew, Hebrew people had benefited through the favor that Joseph had found with Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And during this period, you see there in verse 1, 7, and we see here the key words, they multiplied, growing strong and, to a, and into a great number. Flag up that word multiplies in your mind. It's, it's worth hovering over this verse a little longer. It flags up something important for us to note. Look at the, the language here. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. See the, the repetition of the same idea repeatedly, that the people grew and they grew strong. This ties us into the bigger picture of God and his purposes for the world through his people. And it helps us to understand what is happening in this book. Way back, the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 28, God created man, humanity, and commissioned them, commissioned Adam to be fruitful and multiply, thereby spreading the image and the glory of God across the earth as image bearers would go forth and do the work of God. Then think about the, the covenant promises that God made with Abraham. That kind of threefold promise that he would give them a new home, that they would become a great nation. And that they would be a blessing to the whole earth. And so here we see in this passage in particular, God remaining faithful to the first part of that threefold promise. That promise of being a great nation, of being an enormous family. And you see that there in that language, they multiplied. So in the good, they multiply. God is remaining faithful to his promises. But the good doesn't last. Have a look. We'll see this in verses to 13. Um, here in verse 8, we are introduced to the main antagonist of the opening 14 chapters of this book. And with his introduction, we see things take a turn due to his xenophobic and paranoid policies. Um, have a look at me at the, his words in verse verses 9 and 10. He says this, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, 
Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Like an experienced politician, he manipulates the people to achieve his way. He plays on their fears so that he can push them towards his intended purpose. Uh, so uh, my accent might uh, betray me, but I really am an Irishman. Come from the city of Limerick in the uh, Midwest of Ireland, uh, and while I love the place, we do have those dark stains in our own history. Um, in 1904, there was a redemptress priest. His name is Father John Cray, and he did something similar to what Pharaoh was doing here. He played on the fears of his congregation. He spoke about, he said this, let me quote to you. This is from a homily he gave at that time. He said this, the Jews came to Limerick, apparently the most miserable tribe imaginable with one in their faces. And now they have enriched themselves and can boast a very considerable house property in the city. Their rags have been exchanged for silk. How do the Jews manage to make their money? Some of you may know their methods better than I do, but it's still my duty to expose these methods. They go about as peddlers from door to door, pretending to offer articles at very cheap prices, but in reality charging several times more than in the shops of the locals. This incited his congregation and uh, other people of the city to attack the Jewish shops and homes, starting a boycott against the Jewish community in Limerick. And it's like this. You see this rhetoric that the king is here, that Pharaoh institutes a brutal oppression against the Hebrews, setting them to back-breaking and hope-sapping work. Look at verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Here they're oppressing them with forced labor, attempting to subdue them as a people. But yes, again, we see that key word in verse 12. They multiplied. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. So whatever happens to them, whether they're good or bad, Whatever the Egyptians do to them, God still uses it and God is still faithful to his promises. The more they were oppressed, the larger they grew as a people, leading the king of Egypt and the Egyptians to fear them all the more. And that's what that fear then leads them to the ugly, which we see in verses 13 to 21. The Hebrew taskmasters, they're called to turn up the volume on the Hebrews work. They make their lives bitter with harsh labor. Now, remember, there's no local slavery union rep that they can report this to. There's no recourse to a Cairo Convention of Human Rights. It looks as though things are hopeless for them, or so it might have seemed to them. And it gets worse even as a heinous plan is concocted by the king of Egypt. The Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, 
are put into a nearly impossible position. These midwives are being called to do something that is totally contrary to their profession, to their duty. Instead of nurturing and protecting life, they are commanded to put it out. You see that there, don't you, in verse 16. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on a birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. Now imagine the situation that they are being put into. The king of Egypt is the most powerful man that they have ever known. This is the man who claimed to be half God. Imagine being put into that situation. What are you to do? But here we see that they put the fear of God in front of the fear of man. And they disobeyed his command, refusing to kill the sons, the sons of Israel, the son, the Hebrew boys. This is what Jesus says to uh, his disciples. He warns them, he tells them, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more than they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You see, they knew there was a threat of death. But there's someone greater whom they served. The, The whole of the book of Exodus, certainly the first half, is... This big question for the people is, who will you serve? Will you serve Pharaoh or will you serve God? Uh, It's a question to those who the book is written to and who read it in subsequent generations. It's that ongoing question is, who will you serve? Who will you fear? And here, Shifra and Pua, they are established as, as models for uh, faithfulness to God. Interestingly, isn't it? They are the only names that are mentioned in this 400-year history of the the people after the death of the sons of Jacob all the way to Moses. They are the only ones that are mentioned because they are the ones who fear God. Not even the Pharaoh is named, but these two are. And have a look at verse 20 with me. So God was kind to the midwives and the people most again. So God dealt well with them. They multiplied and they grew very strong. Again, we see that whatever is happening elsewhere, whatever the circumstances are. What is happening is God remains faithful to his promises as he multiplies his people. And that is what we are seeing here in the in this part of Exodus, in this opening chapter. Whatever the circumstances, God is still faithful to his promises. We've seen this downward arc for the people of Israel. They go from the good, the place where they are in favor with the Egyptians. As they go down to the Baz, into a place of oppression and down into the ugly, as the lives of helpless children are threatened. Yet in each of those, God stays true to his promises. So while their ark heads south, 
God's faithfulness remains steadfast and sure, remains consistent, remains straight always. Just like Jesus' descent into death, God's faithfulness remains sure the whole way through. God uses the things that would go against his plans and uses them for his glory and for the good of his people, remaining faithful to his covenant promises. And this is why we as Christians can find as much comfort as those who first heard this story. Those who were waiting on the outskirts of the promised land after 40 years wandering in the desert, wondering whether God would stay true to his promises of a new land, of a new home. And they can see this, that God is faithful to his promises as he multiplies them and makes them into a great and powerful and mighty nation. And so here's a reminder that though our outer situations might say God has gone missing in action. When we look over what God is doing with that spiritual hindsight, which we talked about, we see God is working all things out. For the good of his people. Uh, We saw that phrase in verse eight. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. We could probably paraphrase that a little bit. And we might say that we're living in a time of history here in the United Kingdom. We're living in in a society, in a culture where we might say that the people no longer know Jesus. They no longer know God. Uh, I'm living up here in Scotland, and uh, with older generations, you hear a lot of nostalgic references to speaking of a time when Scotland was known as the land of the book. But when we look out now, so many things seem contrary to what we believe. There's so much friction with positions that we hold. And we might think to ourselves, where is God now? It seemed like he was so present in centuries past. What about now? As where there was once respect for Christianity, for the church, there was now growing antagonism. There is this belief that, that, The Christian faith, the church, is detrimental to the health of our nation. But as that idea of uh, the United Kingdom being a Christian country moves from memory to legend, and the church is regarded as a relic of the past, we remember this, that Jesus has promised that he will build his church and the gates of hell won't overcome it. And look at how the church has grown all throughout history as the as pressure increases, as they feel the burn of the ant- uh, antagonism and affliction of the places in which they are. When Stephen was martyred for his faith, as the 
religious leaders of Jerusalem attempted to muffle this, attempted to muffle the spread of the gospel. The church was scattered and in these, in the ensuing persecution and the gospel went to Samaria and many were converted. It went to the ends of the world and many came to faith in Jesus, the risen savior. Or look at the growth of the Chinese church where the governments in the middle part of the last century kicked out missionaries thinking that they'd neuter and kill off the church. Yet the church is now booming, millions and millions professing Jesus as Lord. You see, while Pharaoh wants to stifle the name of the Lord, God will make himself known. God will continue to make himself known. Now, I don't know the situation of many of you here, but there's probably some who might be listening and thinking, I don't really care about the growth of the church right now. You know, my life, I'm struggling. For some, it might feel like our lives are right in the gutter at the moment. Everything is falling apart. I just don't have time even to think about the state of the church, let alone care for it. But there's comfort for you here also. Because God is faithful to his promises. The God who promised to multiply Abraham's family is the same God who promised that there will be a time when there will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. There'll be no more death. Before that, he's the same God that said he will never leave or forsake you. That he will be right there with you in the midst of the darkness and pain. Um, one of my fav- favorite hymns is an old Scottish hymn. It was written by uh, George Matheson. And in a place of darkness, he, he wrote this. He said, oh, joy that seeks me through the pain. I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not in vain. That morn shall tearless be. You see, this is the uh, objective hope that we have as the church, as followers of Jesus. Which we are reminded of when we look at this opening chapter, which sets up the, the, the whole movement of this book. In the 400 years before God raises up Moses to liberate the people from slavery he was still with them still faithful to his promises still still carrying out what he had laid before them and it's a reminder that whether it's good whether it's bad whether it's ugly god is steadfastly for his people his love never ends We can never be separated from it. And this is a wonderful reminder for us that in whatever situation we find ourselves in, God does not change and God does not forget. But he is faithful to his promises and he will bring them to completion. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, our Heavenly Father, you are the great and powerful one. Yet you are also the one who is intimately concerned 
with the life of your people. The one who descended down into our despair. The one who sent your only son to bear our sin. To take on our sorrow. So that we might be reconciled to you. God our Father, whatever situation we might find ourselves in this evening. Help us not to be overwhelmed by the circumstances in our lives, but help us to fix our eyes on you. That we might remember the promises you have made. That you are the one who knows where we are. Who remembers the promises that you have made for us. And who was made a way so that we might be restored into relationship with you. Father, you are good, you are sovereign, and you are faithful. Help us to remember that, and let that shape the way that we live for you and we serve you in this coming week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.